Well, for me, I think the business model of surveillance capitalism is probably the biggest existential threat to the future of XR, just because it feels like already kind of a morally bankrupt approach. I fear that we're kind of sleepwalking into a, a big brother dystopia that many cyberpunk sci-fi novelists have been warning us for years, but we're kind of on the brink of just doing it anyway, because there's some really cool zombie shooters on the way. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Kent Bai, the voice behind the podcast Voices of VR, which has undoubtedly been one of the world's leading sources of virtual reality information for nearly a decade now. This episode honestly feels like one of the most informative and comprehensive conversations that we've had on the show yet, with Kent's expertise carrying us through a wide array of VR-relevant topics. This includes everything from the journey of VR up to this point, the trajectory of VR into the future, the dynamics of design and of hardware, the impact of meta versus the impact of the indie community, the philosophical impacts in terms of well-being, the role of capitalism and negative incentives, and a whole, whole lot more. So with all of that to come, I will spare you any further exposition at this point, and we can just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Kent Bai. All right, then on that note, I want to start with, I think, Voices of VR and your motivation, specifically because... We're only on episode 50 or so of this show, and I think you're on episode, you're nearing like your 11th hundred episode. You're well over a thousand episodes. What is it that has made you feel motivated to dedicate so much of your time and energy to this singular topic? Yeah, well, I guess it was back in 2014, January 1st, when I first bought my virtuality headset. It was a DK1 from the Kickstarter. They hadn't released their, their second development kit yet. And I just saw the technology as being something that was really transformative. It was like unlike anything that I've seen before. I have a background in electrical engineering, and I also made like videos in high school. And so I would, you know, kind of dabble in making documentary film uh, for a while in my career. And so I've always had this kind of one part art and one point science in my mind. And I feel like VR as a medium is able to combine those two things for me of the technical aspects of my engineering background, but also the artistic aspects of just um, new forms of immersive storytelling. So I guess, you know, if I go back to 2014, there was the the, the big purchase, of course, of, um, you know, Facebook buying Oculus at the time for what was reported to $2 billion, but ended up being more like $3 billion. That was a big turning point in terms of like the attention from the wider industry saying, okay, it looks like that VR is actually going to happen and it's real. And that it's not going to be another kind of failed wave like we had in the, in the 90s where there was a lot of hype, but it never really came to be. The technology wasn't really evolved to the point where it was consumer ready. But this is consumer ready and it seemed to be super compelling. There was some stuff with motion sickness that still needed to be sorted out. But in those early days in 2014, um, there was just a lot of excitement, like the boundless potentials for what was possible with this new medium. And it was the first consumer gathering, like the professional gathering of the Silicon Valley Virtuality Conference in um, 
you know, that had been happening in, in Silicon Valley, a meetup that was monthly meetup. And so Carl Krantz and Somatic Bruce decided to hold the first conference at their one year anniversary. I went there and I ended up, I thought, you know, this is a real historic moment and I wanted to capture it. And so that's, I guess, what I've continued to do over like a hundred different events, both in physical events and virtual events, and probably recorded around 1600 oral history interviews. Wow. But I guess my process uh, would be to go to one of these conferences. And the very first one, I, I think I recorded around 45 interviews. Um, and I just got back from South by Southwest where I did another like 18 interviews and um, we're totaling around 14 hours worth of coverage. And so to really be on the ground to see what's happening at these different contexts, whether it's storytelling or medical XR or what's happening in the industry, uh, games industry, the academic conferences, uh, SIGGRAPH, um, you know, all these different perspectives and to just get as wide a different perspectives as I can, because as a medium, it's really fusing together so many different disciplines uh, and design disciplines. And so whether it's architects or game designers or cinematic storytellers or people who are from the web and human computer interaction, um, it's fusing all those things together and creating a new form and a new design framework that is moving from 2D to 3D. And you know, I was still am convinced that this is a fundamental paradigm shift for how mm. humans are interacting with computers. Um, and I guess I've just been trying to trace that along uh, by going to these different events and talking to the people from the community and trying to capture like a real-time oral history that is, <laughs> I guess, way uh, over ambitious for one person to be pulled off. But yeah, I basically um, one man show who goes to these places and records it, uh, and produces and publishes all these um, podcasts now over a thousand. Yeah. And what has that journey been like in your mind in the past eight years, going from where you were in 2014 at that landmark moment to maybe some of the things that piqued your interest or surprised you at South by Southwest for 2022? What has happened in that span of time um, to the industry in your mind? Well, it's really been the wild west in terms of like just trying to explore what this medium is and what it can do. And because of that, you end up having, you know, what is referred to in the film as like the cinema of attractions. So you have these early phases where there's a lot of experimentation and then eventually people figure out what is going to sell to the market. And then that ends up driving everything else. And there's always sort of an emergent avant-garde scene where people are always on the experimental edge of pushing the limits of what's possible. But for the most part, once you understand the, the cost and the amount of effort number of people, then there tends to be a little bit less innovation when it comes to the popular mainstream. So as that's happened, and as you've had all these um, markets that are in some sense consolidating and, and, you know, in some ways, maybe some potential anti-competitive behavior from meta, which, you know, they're really dominant in terms of the VR market. Um, you know, there there's other diversity in terms of the PC VR, but in terms of standalone, they really mm. have a functional monopoly of, of, you know, kind of mobile uh, standalone VR headsets. And because of that, Meta has been able to, I guess, will certain entire industries out of existence, or at least make it a lot more difficult. Um, so medical XR is, is an example where it's difficult to even get your hands on some of these medical XR pieces outside of on Meta's hardware, because I think they've just kind of distanced themselves from certain industry verticals. They've really gone all in of, of trying to promote the VR medium through gaming and so you have this kind of economic dynamic where you're going towards these hardcore gamers and then the types of experiences that hardcore gamers want, which are different than say what a more diverse ecosystem may look like, especially in the future. And that's where I 
go to different film festivals and maybe see the stuff that isn't necessarily being distributed at the same level as things that are happening within the mainstream market. So mm-hmm. I tend to be on the fringes of what I hope to see coming next in the industry rather than covering a lot of the mainstream releases. I'm going to the film festivals, going to these different conferences um, and seeing maybe location-based entertainment or stuff that can only, you, you, it's very site-specific a lot of times where you have to actually be there to be able to have the experience. But to, to start to also pull back and try to pull out the fundamental um, principles of experiential design to be able to understand, okay, how do I even talk about this experience and what's new and different? If, kind of uh, imagine if you, were, as people see different movies, you can start to say, oh, it'd be like if you m- mashed up the Matrix with the Truman Show and you kind of understand what that might mean uh, with those the two themes of that movie. Well, just the same, once you have enough of these VR experiences together, you could be like, oh, well, it's like Job Simulator and Beat, Beat Saber joined together. So you end up having the experiences that end up being a shorthand to be able to describe the type of experiences that you're talking about. So the development of different genres, of uh, the new genres that are emerging, uh, but also the language to be able to even talk about it. I think mm-hmm. that's, from my perspective, talking to so many different creators, it, it gives me the chance to hear how the creators themselves are, are talking about it in the language that they use. So I guess because I've had this interdisciplinary focus of trying to look at all the different uh, industry verticals and different people looking at it, trying to see how all the different design disciplines and languages that comes together into this one medium of VR. Um, so yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of, you know, on that side and then the other side in terms of the ethics and the privacy yeah. considerations in terms of uh, what are the ethical and moral dilemmas that are going to be brought about because of this technology. And I like to see the technologies mirror, like that these ethical and moral dilemmas would almost be inevitable, but it's a catalyst, meaning that we actually have to kind of figure out how do we define privacy? How do we define our sense of mental privacy or our agency or um, our right to our identity? You know, all these things are going to be at the front lines of being threatened by these immersive technologies. And unless we address those from a holistic perspective, from both the laws and the economic market dynamics and the culture, um, but also just the, uh, you know, aspects of, uh, so we have the, Lawrence Lessig had the, the laws, the uh, culture, the economy, uh, and there's a fourth one that I'm uh, forgetting at the moment. Uh, I'm sure it'll come to you in a moment. But essentially, you have to take a holistic approach to a lot of these. Otherwise, um, you're not going to be able to address these issues. It's going to be, um, oh, I guess the, the fourth one is the technological architecture and the code. Mm-hmm. So there's some things you can do at the tech layer. There's some things that you can only do at the market dynamics for, with competition. There's only some things you can only do with passing new laws. And there's some things that are kind of left up to the culture to try to figure out how to deal with. And I don't think that the privacy concerns are going to be able for the culture to make a, an informed decision, which means that we have to have new laws that are trying to set boundaries for what is what is and is not going to be okay with with this technology. With your perspective kind of more deeply rooted in the, I guess we could call it the subculture, the indie creator arena, and your obvious awareness to what is happening in the mainstream are you more or less optimistic about one versus the other in terms of actual progress being made or like positive movement? Like, do you think meta is actually driving a lot or do you think a lot more comes from the indie community right now? Well, I don't, I I really don't think that VR would be at the same place without a company like meta Mm -hmm. investing as many uh, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars, how much money they've spent, you know, we don't really know for sure, but it's in the tens and dozens of billions at least. 
Um, and you know, there's no way that VR would be at the point that it is right now without a company like Meta to put it to that point. It's just, I guess the, the concern I have is that as you look at the ecosystem of essentially like the big five tech companies, however you want to count them, essentially controlling our entire digital future. Um, yeah. and it's, you know, you need a little bit more diversity and there's not been a really solid antitrust that has, you know, been preventative for this. We've kind of let that go in the name of innovation. But what that's meant is that you kind of have this situation, even on mobile phones, where you have a duopoly between the I, um, the Apple's iOS and Google's Android, which means that any type of experience is, you know, going to be, you know, primarily mediated through their app store ecosystem and, you know, really them pushing people towards this app store ecosystem and then away from the open web. And in some ways, almost deliberately hindering the open web um, in the case of Apple in particular, yeah. um, just not really supporting the open standards in the way that they really should be. Um, so you create the situation where are, as we move into VR and AR, are we going to have that same model? Whereas essentially these companies can decide what can and cannot exist. Um, luckily that there is th this movement for WebXR and open standards like uh, OpenXR from the Kronos group that are really pushing towards these open interoperable standards. But at the same time, we're still in this kind of mindset of the app store ecosystem. Um, there was one experience actually that was at the Venice Film Festival that because it was a, a virtual festival, it, it was uh, featuring like these uh, gay men in a sauna and there was some explicit sex scenes and they literally could not uh, distribute this film for people to see because of the sort of um, the uh, the content standards from both the Vive as well as Oculus. And so yeah. uh, I ended up having to get a private build from them, but that's just one instance of how, you know, really at the avant-garde of real experimentation that's happening in these, you know, independent festivals that, you know, the the contents of, of what is acceptable is kind of, you know, really put down and narrowed in a way as to what is, is possible. And I, I should also say that the curation strategies of Meta have been particularly focused on gaming and they've, you know, for better or worse, really let the diversity of the entire ecosystem, you know, die in a sense that, you know, from one, uh, the earlier iterations of the Rift, they had like thousands of different experiences and now there's on the order of hundreds of experiences. And, you know, for the people that are, make it onto the platform, it's a little bit of a feast or famine, but the people who aren't on that platform, they end up having to go through these, you know, kind of a side quest or back channels, or sometimes not even getting this broader distribution, or they're actively uh, being, you know, stifled by, you know, some of the potential anti-competitive behaviors, you know, like, you know, Zuckerberg wrote a, a memo that was leaked to Blake Harris and then TechCrunch published it. And in this memo, the memo, if you want to find it, they were, you know, uh, considering Facebook at the time was considering buying Unity. But in this memo, they lay out their strategy for, uh, for Meta, which was that number one was going to be software. Number two was the platform and number three was the hardware. So I think for the most part, they followed that in the sense that they subsidized the hardware to make it widely available, but that because Facebook as an entity historically, their app at least, has always been on other people's platforms, whether it's on Android or, or Apple, has meant that they've learned how to make a living by producing quality first-party software that is at the top of the charts. And so they kind of took that same approach, but the problem with that is that they're both the platform provider and the app producer, which means that there's certain conflicts of interest where there's applications like big screen or um, 
you know, with uh, Guy Goodwin's uh, VR desktop uh, or, you know, the six live and, you know, when he was, he's working at the why you are fit, which is a fitness tracker. So there's certain uh, demographics that if you are working on that as a software, but, but meta as a company is working that as a first party software that they have aspirations for, then you may not be accepted onto the app store. So you have these situations where, you know, the bleeding edge of innovation is being stifled because of Meta's own desire to be, to pretty much own certain industry demographics. So you have those different types of things that are happening. And so because of those market dynamics, uh, you know, I'm, I've also been interested in seeing in terms of the, the form and function of, you know, like immersive storytelling as an example, because I sure. feel like there, it really, to me, shows the power of the medium for uh, going above and beyond just the gaming crowd, but to to the non-entertainment or the data visualizations or the enterprise applications, you know, the, the types of things where people who may be interested in things like, you know, consciousness hacking or being able to be able to, you know, uh, do productivity or other experiences to get into these deep flow states for whatever context that you're working in. You know, VR as a medium is really kind of tapping into these, what I see is these fundamental aspects of embodied cognition, meaning that our brain or the way that we think in our cognitive processes are not just being driven by our mind, that they're actually integrated in a holistic ecosystem of our body through this mm-hmm. concept of neuroscience called embodied cognition, but also this concept of distributed cognition, meaning that of the context under which we're in is also driving how we think. So in VR environments, you're able to control that contextual environment, which is also changing your thinking. So this technology is kind of like blazing new neural pathways into our mind and really yeah. able to set up all these different contexts. So I go back to these fundamental, you know, kind of neuroscience concepts and, you know, with how we react into these immersive environments, but also we're moving from 2D to 3D, which means that we're moving from a mouse and keyboard into these more spatial embodied input devices with EMG in the future and then our track controllers, but even just moving our bodies as a controller ends up being a pretty radical shift from a design perspective. And I think is going to be the type of shift that even goes way beyond this shift from kind of print into the, you know, computer with what we've had with the web. And then from the different form factors with, from the 2D uh, computer PC VR into the mobile tablets and the phones. Um, So this kind of responsive design that the web has been going through, we're going through yet another responsive design revolution going from 2D to 3D, which then, you know, introduces all these other complications that I think are going to take uh, maybe a few decades to really settle in of using all these different design disciplines together. Yeah. As we start to really dissolve that line, I guess, between what people call the real world and the digital world, you know, as we increasingly are spending our time in that domain and arguably it's as immersive as real life in some, in some ways, do you think that there is a, I guess, a, a danger towards that? Do you think, how, what, what I guess is the balance that you think is optimal there? Do you think we need a balance between real life and digital life? Is, is too much, too good, or too bad? Well, this is a very philosophical question as to what is real. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually a debate that David Chalmers has made within his book called Reality Plus Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Where, you know, his argument uh, gets into like, you know, it goes way back to Descartes and the evil demon, meaning that, you know, if there was an evil demon that was controlling all your perceptions, then that would be a fake illusionary world and that'd be a terrible thing. And what uh, what Chalmers is kind of arguing in this book is that 
hey, we, we could actually be living in a simulation. And if it's a perfect simulation run by a quantum computer and using cellular automata and basically overcoming all the computational complexity, you know, if there's no blockers to this perfect simulation that we could actually be in a perfect simulation and that metaphysically we'd have no way of knowing that for sure or to be able to prove that we're not to absolutely prove that we're not in a simulation, it's a very difficult thing to do. So we could be in a simulation, which means that we may already be in a computer simulation. So if that's true, what Chalmers argues is that rather than the Descartes kind of saying that all of this stuff is not real, we should treat what we're experiencing as our reality, which I, I like that because I feel like the types of immersive experiences that I have in VR can feel just as real and just as memorable as experiences that I have in what I say, physical reality rather than real reality. Sure. Um, because there's a difference between physically being somewhere and being able to in, uh, kind of in, interact with the haptic and the touch and the feeling. But, you know, in my way of looking at this, I see that there's different qualities of presence where there's active presence and agency. So to what degree can you engage and interact and move around into these spaces? And then Mel Slater talks about the plausibility illusion, or I talk about the mental and social presence of so the degree to which that you suspend your disbelief that you're actually in that world and that world feels real. And that's your mental models that you create of that world. And it kind of matches your expectations. And that it's, it's like when you see a movie, you suspend your disbelief, but if there's a plot gap, then you kind of, you, you get pulled out of the movie and just the mm -hmm. same in VR. If there's something that is no longer plausible, then it can break your sense of, you know, mental presence of like, you no longer feel like you're fully immersed into this world or it doesn't feel real. Um, and so then there's the emotional presence, which I feel like is a degrees of, you know, commitment to the world or immersion or lighting, the mood, the, the sound and the, the sound effects, but also the music that's there. Lots of things that, that make you feel the sense of emotions and, and the building and releasing of, of dissonance and consonant cycles as an example. And then the final thing is like this aspect of embodied and environmental presence or what Mel Slater would call the place illusion. So you feel like you're in that place and this kind of virtual body ownership illusion that you actually have a, a virtual body ownership within that place. So I, I agree with Chalmers in the sense that you can have this sense of active presence and mental and social presence and emotional presence and embodied and environmental presence within VR. And, and it can be just as real as what you have in you know, physical reality. Like I said, the difference is in that environmental embodied presence, you know, the different types yeah. of haptic responses and taste and touch and smells, you know, all those things are difficult to replicate. Um, and then the visual and auditory auditory is probably the most immersive where it can trick you the most, uh, the spatialized audio, but the visuals, you know, we'll maybe get there at some point, but I think actually, if you kind of lower down the fidelity and have this stylized approach, you can actually feel super immersed within these environments. And so, you know, to kind of pull back from your questions between the digital and the real and, you know, whether or not we have these meaningful experiences, I think it all comes back into being in right relationship to our obligations as human beings mm -hmm. in the world. And if we are escaping those obligations, then it's VR is no different than any other, you know, mediated technology, whether it's Netflix or uh, your phone or whatever it ends up being video games where you can use any media technology as an escape from your obligations. And so sure. as long as you're in those right relationships, I think it's, you know, the thing that I see at least is we're moving into this world where these, these VR experiences are becoming more and more immersive, but also with augmented reality, we're going to be overlaying these immersive worlds on top of our realities, just like Pokemon Go or Ingress mm -hmm. are kind of the early indications of ways in which that you can put a gamified narrative on top of our physical reality and you can have people 
have these different social dynamics that they may not do otherwise. So just the same, I think we're going to start to see that with overlaying the digital realities. And so the the differentiation between the the virtual and digital mediated versus the physical realities, I think are going to start to blur because at the end of the day, you have your degree of agency of, of making choices, taking actions, kind of like in the video games that you do. And then you have the mental and social presence with social media and the internet and all these other existing communication media with the web um, that we have. Um, and then we have the emotional presence that we get from film uh, and other um, you know, aspects of, of lighting and, and whatnot. And then the, the theatrical aspects or architectural aspects of, an, of the environmental, um, but also the, the embodiment. So actually, you know, physically feeling like your, uh, your, your body's has an avatar representation and you're in these yeah. worlds. So because of those, all those things come together, I think come up into, you know, giving us just as visceral as experiences as we do, whether it's in physical reality or if it's in virtual reality. So, so let's equalize those as our assumption then. Let's call the real world and the digital world equal in terms of their visceral sense of presence and meaning. Given that assumption, do you feel that there are certain benefits or consequences that VR or XR or augmented reality really introduce um, that do stand separate from uh, the real world, because, you know, if you are on an equal playing field, we still have the right to say that some aspects of reality are better than others, right? We still want people to have higher states of well-being and less states of depression or whatnot. In that same sense, are there are there things that do are introduced by the technology that do shift the dynamic uh, substantially? Well, I think, you know, one thing to point out is that, you know, as humans on the planet, we have to be in right relationship to the planet around us. And if we're not, then we're all going to like destroy ourselves. And so that's like a primary thing is that, it, you know, if, if VR technologies means that we basically have to exploit the earth beyond its carrying capacity, then it's, uh, you know, perhaps not a technology that's worth pursuing. However, what I think is probably going to end up happening is that people are probably going to end up discovering that having a maybe a virtual representation or a digital representation will be able to replace a lot of these different physical aspects that we need in our lives. And it may actually reduce the different types of, you know, impact that we have in the world because we're not actually having to produce the physical versions of that because the digitally mediated environment may, you know, experience of that may be the thing that's, you know, as valuable. So I think what I, what I see at least with what's happening with these, you know, VR technologies is that, you know, there's a, um, Peter, Pete Moss from used to work at unity. He said that, you know, this, these are technologies that are blazing new neural pathways into your mind. Um, and I know that Jaron Lanier has often said that the VR experience ha starts when you start to take off your headset, because when you're in that, uh, VR environment that is blazing new neural pathways, that means that when you come out of that, you're literally changing the way that you see the world. And I've noticed that from my own experience of of seeing the quality of light or seeing this, the degrees of embodiment that I have, and then going to Multnomah Falls and feeling the water spray in my face and be like, wow, this is something that I, I can't have uh, within a VR experience. Or I go see a sunrise at the Grand Canyon and I see the quality of light that is slowly spreading across all these huge amount of space that would be really difficult to do all the different physical base rendering and real-time simulation. And then there's just something about the quality of light that when you see it, it is different than when you see the virtually mediated. So Jerry Lanier actually believes that we will, as humans, always be able to tell the difference between mm. the 
the digitally mediated and the actual reality. And I, I think that's an interesting idea that like maybe if you were to time travel in the future and take the best VR experience and then bring it back in time to now and show it to people that they would it would be indistinguishable from reality. They would just not be able to tell the difference. But I also like to think that humans will maybe evolve and that it'll actually allow us to refine our sense of perception in a way that we start to notice little subtle nuances that we may not notice before. I, um, I, I love that you take that, that gratitude approach and optimistically, that's a beautiful one. But on the flip side, do you think there's the potential where it works inversely, where someone is so happy with the kind of reality that they're living in, in VR in a virtual space, and then go out into their day-to-day life and are just disappointed by how mundane or unfulfilling it is? Like, are we setting up a potential with this neuroplasticity, I guess, to rewire ourselves to expect a certain sense of control, a certain sense of agency, a certain sense of fulfillingness from the virtual world? That when we step out into our, our you know, our, our materialistic world, that we're like, shit, this is not nearly as good as the other thing I had. And now I'm kind of more depressed about my actual life outside of VR. I think that's certainly a potential. And like I was talking before in terms of the different centers of gravity in terms of active presence, mental and social presence, emotional presence, and embodied environmental presence, you know, those are the things, at least how I start to make sense of the different qualities of presence. I think what the types of embodied and embedded experiences that you can have in physical reality with the taste, touch, smell with other human beings in real time is something that is still going to be hard to top to the same degree. I mean, when you think about body language and micro expressions and the degree of which all the different subtle nuances of um, kind of um, emotional micro expressions and communications, as an example, um, is something that is going to take a long, long, long time to be able to replicate within VR. So, but there is, I'd say like an 80%, like it's good enough where you can feel like you're actually hanging out with people in social VR and it actually feels like you're hanging out with them. And sometimes those different types of experiences that you have are going to be so incredible and novel and things that you can only do within VR that it is going to be hard to top with having the same type of experiences with people. But I feel like, and that's, that's, there's some people that have in the past argued that, you know, because people want to be embedded into physical reality, that AR will of course always be like way bigger than VR. But I actually am skeptical of that as a claim, because there's just like a boundless potential for the types of the stuff that you can do in VR that we don't even know exist yet. And that in some ways, AR is limited to what you can do in physical reality. And, and so when you start to like add in AR on top of those physical reality, and then on top of VR, I think it's like, um, it's not like going to be just totally one or the other. I think it's going to be more of a spectrum, uh, like, uh, Milgram, um, had a whole spectrum between on the one end is complete physical reality. And then you have different layers of augmentation, which you could arguably argue that people are already augmenting their experiences that they walk around and they're listening to their iPads and your iPhones. And, um, they're, they're listening to music. They're, um, already talking to people, they're on social media. I mean, there's already these layers of reality that are that are overlaid, but they're through the portal of our phone. And so it's not like a embedded into or anchored to the physical reality, but I think eventually it will be. And then it has the actual potential to maybe break us out of this escapist, you know, kind of looking into our little windowed portals mm-hmm. and kind of disassociating. And it may actually ground us and to be, be more physically present with each other, co-located in spaces. And so I think actually 
you know, with the iPhone coming out in 2007, maybe that was kind of the peak of our disassociation you know, as we've gone on and, and increased that there has been this, you know, pandemic and we have this dissociative quality, especially when we go out in the world and we're looking at our phones and maybe, you know, with AR and VR is going to actually ground us into be more aware of the environments that are around us and maybe to other people as well. Because if you think about the future of AR and social media, maybe it's going to be something like the Pokemon Go or Ingress that brings people of that have similar interests, just like the you know, meetup.com was able to draw people from a certain geographic location around certain areas of interest, but maybe it's dynamic to site specific and to very specific moments in time where communities come together to do specific actions. Um, but also I think in VR, you start to have these more in interesting intersections where maybe there's people that are interested in VR and these other, you know, things that are consciousness hacking and, you know, music, and maybe those are like three things of like three separate meetup groups where the overlap maybe is like six people in the world or whatever, like you could start to have people joining together within VR and starting to create culture that only those six people could create for their own satisfaction of the stuff they want to, to make. So I think it actually has the potential to kind of create this really niche cultures that um, go above and beyond what we've already seen with like online culture, um, but in the realm of embodied immersive experiences with other people. Yeah, speaking of augmented reality there, I think a lot of people have been concerned with the adoption of VR and and still feel that we are kind of experiencing a false start for all the investment. People are concerned that VR may not really go as far as, far as AR, at least in the near term. Do you think that's true? And do you think VR is currently struggling and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to go under the radar for a while while AR kind of brings the mainstream up to speed? Well, this is a challenge within the VR industry in the sense that there's not been complete transparency for how many of these headsets have been have been sold. Mm -hmm. um, Meta has been really cagey with not providing actual empirical evidence for what is out there. We, at the best, we can guess is that it's maybe around 10 million mm -hmm. um, at this point, you know. But you know, we don't really know, and that's a challenge to be, for people on the outside. And I think because of that, you kind of have this a lot of armchair experts that really haven't been tracking the industry and maybe only follow mainstream media coverage of this, which has been absolutely terrible over the years in terms of that it's an emerging technology that they, they have an idea for what it should be and what the metrics of success should be. And it hasn't, you know, it's, um, you think about like exponential growth that doubles year over year. And I think over time, VR has probably been on this exponential growth trajectory, but it's just not Cross the chasm into the mainstream to the point where it goes viral. But you know, when you have this doubling year over year over year, then you know it goes from like you know one million to four, two million to four. You know, it's at eight, uh, 10 million. It could be twenty million by this time next year. We don't. Yeah. So it's it's at that that exponential growth stage, but also because of been so dominated by one industry player, then that's also not had a lot of ecosystem diversity, which is also a concern. So for me, it's yeah. less about, I mean, it's it's one of those things for me, like I, I see the power of the medium and I've talked to enough people that it's, for me, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Mm -hmm. And it, and that when that actually happens is also a function of all these other things. I mean, actually the pandemic has, 
probably catalyze people's ability to be able to be comfortable with the types of virtually mediated technologies. I mean, people that were not on Zoom or having remote conversations are now so much more accessible. And so, but there's also limits to doing Zoom calls when you get past maybe like a certain critical mass of like, you know, it's great for one-on-one conversations, but when you have group conversations, it starts to break down in terms of having you know, sidebar conversations or whatnot. So there's some companies like Accenture who have like bought like 60,000 headsets to be able to onboard their new employees. Um, and so every new employee to Accenture gets onboarded in through like Altspace and they are able to have the types of onboarding of, of getting into a new company that you would expect if you were actually, you know, physically there. Um, and then because Meta has been, I guess, really trying to move towards this more remote work and using the technology, they're trying to like, eat their own dog food. Although I, you know, there's one critique of, that I'd have in Meta is that there's a lot of people who are working on VR that may not be you know, per- personally interested in doing VR experiences. It's kind of like their day job and not yeah. something that they're super passionate about, which when you have like as many people working on it, I think around eight to 10,000 people or so, there's a lot of people at Meta working on it. So, um, but in terms of like trying to estimate the, the growth and vitality of the community, I would look to say, um, Companies like either VRChat with anywhere from 80 to 90,000 concurrent users, um, which is you know, a lot. Um, and, but even, uh, and I don't know, uh, and the caveat is that some of those users are still in 2D VR. It's hard to know exactly. I mean, they know the numbers, they just really haven't shared. And the other thing is that um, Rec Room has, I mean, the last I saw, they had over a million uh, monthly active users in VR. Um, and probably even more than that now, because that was maybe um, you know at least six months old, if not a year ago. So each Christmas, there's a big, huge influx of new users, um, and I think we're gonna start. We're seeing that in terms of more and more people um, having their friends to be able to go hang out and do stuff with NVR. Um, so yeah, I to me like this question of like when is this inflection point gonna be? I think actually Beat Saber as a as a game is one of those examples where. Um, it's an amazing, it's the, the top selling VR game of all time. And I think it's grossed over like a hundred million dollars or something at this wow. point, which is, you know, quite a bit for how many users are in VR. Um, so it's grossed over like a hundred million dollars and it's just a really amazing, fun game. Um, and then there's companies like Supernatural, which has, you know, was started with uh, Chris Milk and um, Aaron Coburn with Within, but then they pivoted into doing this more exercise in VR types of experiences where, um, and especially during the pandemic where people, it's, it's like, you know, people buy a gym membership. And so some, for some people, they get their quest and it's essentially their gym membership because they yeah, use okay. it to exercise, whether they're playing pistol whip or beat saber or any of the number of different, um, uh, I fit VR, lots of different experiences that are out there. Uh, supernatural is another one, which has music and has like a coach that's helping you move your body and feeling like you're actually getting, in a workout. So it's actually people coming out of VR feeling like they're more in their body, they're, they're feeling healthier, get these endorphin hits. So things like that, where you look at, there's like these certain industry verticals that are a catalyst and looking at what's happening with fitness has been a huge catalyst within VR, uh, but also the gaming um, yeah. industry. And there's games like Half-Life Alex, where if you look at the overall ecosystem, there's standalone VR and PC VR. And then if, so if you have like a PC compatible VR system, then you can still get a quest and be able to kind of wirelessly stream it or use the Oculus link. So you can still play like the top tier AAA video games, like Half-Life Alex from Valve uh, uh, with your PC, com- your, you know, your VR com- uh, compatible 
PC VR, but to be able to play it on your Quest and be able to experience it. So because of that, um, there's, uh, in terms of the content ecosystem, it's robust. So, I mean, for me, especially when I start to talk to like neuroscientists, researchers, and, you know, the, the frontiers of where we're going with, you know, like we haven't talked, we haven't even talked about, you know, the frontiers of uh, EMG, which is the electromyography, which is the, these control labs um, devices that um, Meta has made is something eventually that you're going to be able to put on your wrist and kind of like they've said that you can just think about typing something and you can start to type. So you're not actually physically moving stuffing, but it's able to, to isolate down to individual motor neurons, which means that you're able to use your motor cortex and the way that you move your body, especially within your hands, uh, and you thinking about how you move your fingers in different ways. And that's going to be able to trigger things within immersive experiences, which are going to be able to like go into these whole old weird realms of being able to embody an octopus as an example, <laughs> but just even thinking about like the frontiers of human computer interaction, just like even just the intention of thinking and not even actually moving, meaning that you can start to engage with computing, which is a completely new paradigm, which I, I think is probably going to be a catalyst to when we think about, you know, as we're out in the world in AR and what are the new input devices. And I think that when I hear any sort of skepticism around this as a technology, I don't think people realize the frontiers of like brain control interfaces and EMG and these non-invasive neural interfaces is going to be such a huge you know, paradigm shift for how we engage with computing. Um, and from the people that I've talked to that have had a chance to kind of play around with it, it's like, it's pretty revolutionary. It is like maybe kind of learning how to type again or learning how to engage with technology, but um, what I see is this like parallel track with what's happening with artificial intelligence with uh, XR technologies, whether that's VR or AR. So there's there's a back and forth where the VR innovations are actually catalyzing new mm. computer vision algorithms or other innovations. I mean, to go from the DK1 and like the first release in 2013 into like the Oculus Quest in 2019, and then you know to the 20, uh, 2020 with the Oculus Quest 2, and then this coming year, with new versions in 2022, you essentially have this, like, I don't even know how many magnitudes of order, the difference that you could categorize yeah. the difference in that short period of time, how much innovation has come from both Qualcomm and their XR2 chips and the AI, um, you know, neural networks and deep learning, all the different stuff that's happening with that. I mean, there was just an example of demos that uh, Meta was showing where you could just speak out words about what you wanted to see in the experience and it would create it for you. So mm. being able to use your voice, uh, in the, as an, as an input device and to be able to do creation tools, it's going to get really, I think that same amount from where we were from the very first version of, you know, let's say the, uh, uh DK one back in 2013. Um, what is that like, uh, nine years, get it, give it another nine years from now, or say 2025 or 2035, you know, when you start to get out to that point, the degree of that continued exponential growth of these technologies, I think are just going to be um, pretty mind blowing. Uh, it's hard for me to even, for me to even imagine where it's going to go, especially when you start to look at, uh, you know, these new neural uh, techniques of like they had um, these Waymo cars when I visited San Francisco, they're just driving around everywhere. They're essentially training them to be able to, uh, to, to create a neural network that can generate these 3D scenes. Mm -hmm. um, so the different types of AI technologies that are coming from the XR type of sensors, depth sensors, 
and the way that we're able to perceive the world, um, as we start to project that out of saying these neural networks that can create digital light fields, which would be you know indistinguishable from you know other lights, and if you have uh, digital light field displays within AR, it's going to get to the point where you're starting to overlay digital representations of reality that are indistinguishable, and your brains may not really be able to tell the difference between yeah. what's real and what's not. Do you think we're on like the cusp of maybe like a 1960s, 70s psychedelic revolution? Like, is there going to be a, a shift in the cultural zeitgeist as a result of this? Because I don't feel like you can immerse yourself in that kind of a psychedelic and pure expression vehicle and not walk out the other side a change person. <laughs> like, is, how how is this going to change us as a as a species? Do you think like culturally? Well, I mean that's a it's I've asked over sixteen hundred people what the ultimate potential of VR is and what it's yeah. going to enable, and I think this gets to that question as to to what degree do these media technologies change every aspect of our lives and and in so many different contexts, whether it's medical, XR, communication, education. Um, you know, as I talk to people, it's. I feel like there's going to be a building period of like, you know, Mark Peche said, it's going to take a, a generation to basically, um, if you think about something like Wikipedia as a representation of like an encyclopedia of human knowledge, what is the, in, what is the Wikipedia of spatial mean? Um, it almost is like, I feel like there's like the language of film has evolved over 120 years or so that we've had films and we watch a film and we can understand it. It's hard for me to know whether or not if you were to create a film created now and take it back into the past and show people if they were able to like understand what was happening. Like if you show them Mad Max Fury Road, like something that has a cut every like a second and a half or something. Yeah. Or like, would they understand it? Would, you know, for me, I'd like to think maybe, but maybe there's been like a co-evolution of how people watch in a film and understand the language of the film. And maybe it's something similar with VR where you can't just sort of shortcut it, but it's actually a part of this evolutionary process where you have what's possible and then you have the artist make something that's possible. Then the audience has to see it and then they have to learn how to engage with it because it's a fusion of a video game and moving and interacting with it. And eventually you're kind of you know coming back into um, you know, the feedback that you get from the audience. So because of that loop, it's an iteration that's, that has to go through many, many, many more iterations because um, you can create something that's really cutting edge, but if the audience can't understand how to engage with it. Um, so I think a good analogy would be maybe like, think about Westworld uh, where people were thrown into a world and they have to do a little bit of what we would mm -hmm. refer to as like, say, live action role play, where you have to, in, in essence, become an actor that's embedded within that scene. I think more and more our entertainment is going to be us embedded into these immersive environments where we essentially become a part of this living story where we become a character that we have to live into. Um, so these are like some deep like uh, cultural shifts. Not everybody wants to be like on stage. And so there's gonna be other people who are more just kind of watching and observing. And maybe those are the different tiers. Um, but in terms of like the large cultural things, I think if, if we start to like maybe project out to say 2045, you'd be like a good like example. I think that's probably like the time frame when you start to maybe even have, I mean, this gets into the, the philosophy of, of mind and the theories of consciousness and what's even possible in terms of direct neural injection and whether or not you're going to be able to put something into your mind to be able to mediate the experience. 
we have some things that are just really difficult to get a hold of in terms of our touch and our taste and our smells. I think we can get pretty far with just our, our eyes and our ears mm-hmm. uh, and to a certain degree to our body with haptic suits. But, you know, there may be some things that you have to have something that is doing direct neural stimulation. I'm personally skeptical of that just because I feel like our bodies have evolved to the point where we're taking in so much sensory information and filtering it in different ways. Um, and so in terms of like, you know, this radical vision, but who knows, you know, anything's possible between now and in terms of taking these types of immersive experiences and doing, you know, taking it to the next level of you really believing that you're there. Um, do, you, do you like the idea of like brain uploads? Like, would you, are you excited about the prospect? We might get to the point where we just live in virtual reality perpetually. I'm not, um, I'm not, I don't, I think there's a fundamental incompleteness, um, mm. th- that, that are for us to be able to model our brains and be able to replicate it within digital media technologies. I think there's always going to be limits because there's certain aspects of our embodied experiences that, I mean, I think it goes back to embodied cognition where our cognition is in the context of our bodies. And when you start to disassociate that from our bodies, then, um, you know, but this is an open question. We don't really know. It will find out more about the philosophy of mind and consciousness, the true nature of consciousness as to whether or not you start, you, you, do you need a organic substrate of our bodies to, as an example, um, is, is consciousness something that, you know, are our bodies in some sense, a like a, a, a dualistic antenna where maybe our consciousness is non-dual in, in, or maybe it's a, just an epiphenomena of our brains. And that if we recreate those, then we can recreate it. But you know, this is what Chalmers has identified as the hard problem of consciousness, meaning that like, even if you recreate that, then can you know if it's actually conscious? And even if you did that, how would you tell, how can I prove that you're conscious? I don't know if we can, you know, like right. we can, we can say that I'm conscious and I know what my phenomenal experience is, but you know, so I think there's all these questions that I'm personally skeptical about it. Um, just because of all the different embodied and embedded nature of our consciousness and, and, and our cognition. Right. That's, that's longer term obstacles, I guess, but in the shorter term, what are some of your concerns, I guess, in terms of obstacles that are potentially going to hold us back, maybe even that are holding us back now just from adoption, because specifically you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of things right now is centered on gaming. And while gamers are definitely a massive community and probably more popular than they've ever been, uh, it's still kind of a a niche community you know it's not for everybody and that can really hold people back from adopting vr if it sticks with that one killer app so what are what are some things like that maybe that you feel like are potentially holding us back or that are questions that are looming that need to be answered before we really push forward well for me i think the business model of surveillance capitalism is probably the biggest existential threat to the Mm. future of xr just because it feels like already kind of a morally bankrupt approach. Um, I mean, it's not completely morally bankrupt in the sense that there's a trade-off. The trade-off is that it makes this technology more accessible to people so that it's being subsidized by data and making it more available. So in that sense, it's affordable. And because of the business model of Meta is surveillance capitalism, you can buy a Quest for like $299. And when Apple comes out with their XR device, it's probably going to be like, 700, 800 or over a thousand dollars. It's not going to be as accessible. So in terms of accessibility of making the technology accessible, that's actually a key part of making it uh, proliferate and available. Mm. Otherwise it'd be just too expensive. 
But at 299, that's a really good price point for what you get with being able to be transported into another realm. Right. <laughs> but the, the side effect is that we're mortgaging our privacy and, and we don't have a good framework as to what the threshold is for what is okay and what's not okay. Especially when you start to think about the future of these biometric and physiological sensors that are coming out, especially eye tracking, when you can start to be contextually aware of what you're looking at and know what you're looking at, when, for how long, you know, you start to be able to extrapolate all sorts of different types of psychographic profiling information. And there currently in all of our federal laws in the United States, there's no good way of defining this type of biometric data and how it's used. Most of privacy law right now is really focusing on our immutable identity of who I am as an individual. So you hear things around, you know, this immersive data that's collected, is that going to leak out? And someone's going to know that that data came from me. That's essentially connected to my identity. But this new model that we're moving towards is much more about the contextual relevance of that data in the moment, meaning I'm in this environment and there's something in this environment and I'm paying attention to it and I'm having all these other physiological and emotional reactions to it. Therefore, it's going to create a profile of that contextually relevant information. And with that, start to create these really robust uh, profiles of my identity of who I am and what I like in, across these different contexts. And given that, that's like a gold mine for a data Marketers, company. advertisers, yeah. Yeah, to advertise around that. So there's been this movement of neuroscientists uh, talking about these fundamental neuro rights or so our right to our mental privacy. So being able to read our thoughts and our intentions, our motivations, our emotions, uh, what we're thinking, and even our embodied actions or fatigue, you know, all these degrees of what's happening in, in, in our body that can be de detected by these physiological markers. And then once you have that, then you start to map and model our identity. So there's the right to our identity. To what degree are, are we going to allow these companies to endlessly model our, our, our interests and our preferences from moment to moment across all these contexts? And then the last one is our right to agency. So to, at what point is it are they going to have so much information, map our identity so fine-grained to the point where they can start to nudge our behaviors in a way that may not even be perceptible? Um, they change the environment or they start to nudge us towards these certain behaviors where maybe we're not completely aware that we're making a, a choice uh, because we've been influenced contextually to such a huge degree. <clears throat> so these neuro rights of the right to mental privacy, the right to identity, the, the right to um, our, our agency. These are things that are nice to say from a human rights perspective, but how do you actually translate that into like the technical neuroscience and what the boundaries are from a, both a coding perspective, but also enforcement perspective. But there could be like, there may need to be like, just hey, we should maybe consider not using all this data for advertising. Maybe just yeah, put a yeah. bar on that um, because otherwise it, there's going to be a threshold that it's going to be too far, where it is going to be too intimate. But to draw that threshold and to have these companies police themselves over to know how not to cross that threshold, I fear that we're kind of sleepwalking into a big brother dystopia by not articulating that more clearly at this phase. Yeah. Because in 2022, we're going to start to have VR headsets that are shipping, consumer headsets that are shipping with eye tracking technologies that are, are going to have that degree of information. And what happens to that data and how it's used, it's already all in their terms of service that they can do whatever they want in terms of advertising and, and kind of create this dystopic vision of the future that many cyberpunk sci-fi novelists have been warning us for years, but we're kind of on the brink of just doing it anyway, because there's some really cool zombie shooters on the way. <laughs>
Yeah. Do you, do you feel like there is more of an impetus or an imperative uh, that we take that seriously now? Because I think of specifically, like you were saying before, you have the big five tech companies, you specifically have meta in this point. And thus far, they are not known exactly for prioritizing well-being over profit. You know, there's a lot of exploitation, a lot of greed. There's a lot of issues with narcissism and addiction. And that's all kind of brushed under the rug for the sake of the progress. If we're talking fully immersive presence, you know, like my background is in neuroscience and psychology. And I think specifically, like you were talking there about uh, the environment. The environment is full of cues that we use. Like it can cause stress and anxiety in all kinds of little subtle ways to modify our behavior. If we don't have some kind of policy in place to manage that, we're we're looking like Facebook turned up a thousand fold, you know, in terms of its negative consequences. Like how like where are we right now in actually managing that dialogue and like who's who should be driving that? Like, do we, do we need to look at the government to say, Hey, it's time you guys finally learn some science and like step up and create a, a division that handles this? Or do we expect tech companies to do it, which might seem unrealistic? Like there's a lot there, but I'm just wondering your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the calling Ridge dilemma that kind of drives a lot of those discussions, which is essentially that you don't want to like um, regulate too early because you may stifle the innovation. And then by the time you do want to regulate it, then it's already too late and it's too complicated and it's already adopted by the culture yeah. and kind of hard to put the, the genie back into the bottle. So there's this like kind of very small window where you can have enough of the innovation that's kind of a well-developed and on, on the trajectory, but put good controls in there. And I think, but the we're kind of missing that window time and time and time again, where the regulation is like decades behind where it should be in terms of really reining in these things. And we've really let these uh, companies run free with their kind of laissez-faire capitalism approaches with these things and let them kind of sort out those ethical and moral dilemmas. And the externality, the externalized cost is the harms to society. Right. Um, and that this is the, the aspect of privacy is difficult to really identify the harms because a lot of the times those privacy harms are invisible. I mean, if there is, if there was the Cambridge Analytica case as an example of data that was leaked out and used to manipulate uh, some aspect of our, and, and maybe sway and change the votes of 25,000 or how many other voters that would need to sway an entire election, those voters may never know. I mean, to, for them to say that they were harmed it's uh, it starts to get at the collective level. So the degree of the relationality of some of these dynamics has been another discussion in terms of a lot of the Western liberal way of thinking about rights is individual rights, but there's also relational dynamics here that are like you you may be talking about recording aspects of your room and you may consent to that, but maybe that is a shared room with your family and maybe there's aspects of that that you're infringing on their privacy. So the relational aspects, I think, are you know a big reason why I, I lean towards like other uh, philosophers like uh, Alfred North Whiteheads, and you know, when he looks thinks about like process relational approaches. I think we really need to get away from thinking about the world in these static, concrete, individual, individualistic objects, and how and more of a relational context um, from all the way down to quantum layers, all the way up to the way that we relate to the world and how we are in right relationship to these technologies. Um, the the theory of privacy I really am drawn to is like the Helen Nissenbaum's contextual integrity, where she's really trying to say that there's 
there are these different contexts and that we shouldn't just say, you know, bar all information that's neural data as an example. Just say we can never have any neural data in any context because, well, what if you want to do consciousness hacking applications where you want to be able to monitor what's happening inside of your body and your brain? And when you want to use that to advance your own health and well-being, well, we should be able to do that, of course. But the problem is that when you have that same type of data, it's essentially medical data that's being handed over to these companies and it's not being regulated under HIPAA because right. Meta is going to do as much as they can to, to stay as far away as anybody ever even thinking about or considering this as a medical device because they don't want all this data, which is actually medical data, to be treated as medical data and regulated as medica- medical data, which is probably it should be because yeah. it is very intimate and sensitive when it comes to revealing certain medical conditions. So why shouldn't it be? I mean, it, it, I think it's it, the reason why it's not because it's so much, you know, overhead from a regulatory perspective that it may actually, you know, have the other effect of regulation, which it means that the only people that can do a VR and to compete are these companies that have enough money to, to meet those regulations. So it has another aspect of unintended consequence. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to have to have a reckoning with how to define privacy. And, and the thing that kills me is that I, I watch Meta say that they're all for promoting privacy. And it's almost like watching George Elwell's like 1984, because the way that they define privacy is from like the 1973 definition of the fair information practice principles, which means that as long as we tell you what data we're, we're collecting, then we're private. And it's yeah. like such an antiquated way of like notice and consent with like, hey, you're going to sign all of these adhesion contracts that you have no ability to negotiate. We're going to basically just take a settler colonial mindset and seize all of your data and, and take ownership and control over it and do whatever we want with it in exchange for essentially free access to a program or, or a subsidized lower cost to this hardware. And the challenge with that is that it's this kind of contextual uh, you know, integrity that Nissenbaum talks about. To what degree, when you sign those adhesion contracts, are you agreeing to have every intimate part of your your life and what you're paying attention to monitored and surveilled and modeled to be able to serve ads to you that is kind of an infringement of your identity and an infringement of your own identity, your own things that you're sharing, uh, want to share the world. You have this concept of free speech, but when you have these devices that are potentially literally reading your mind, and if that's being recorded to a server on on Facebook, and then according to the third-party doctrine, which is a fourth amendment uh, interpretation, that means that anytime a third party has data recorded, that means that there's no reasonable expectation for privacy. So anytime a third party records anything, according to the government, it's basically in the public domain to them. They can just yeah. get access to it. They don't even have to ask for, uh, you know, uh, to, to get a, uh, a warrant sometimes. They can just get it. Um, so because of that, that you have this kind of this this uh, potential future where you're rec- recording all of this really intimate, contextually um, relevant information for people that is going to be potentially in the hands of the government. Um, so because of that, it's like not only the future of these companies are having an asymmetrical amount of power over us, but that power could also be transferred over to the government and used for abusive dictatorial uh, you know, uh, uh, reasons, which, you know, here in America, we probably thought we were really far away from that, but just to see how close we went into kind of slipping into an authoritarian state, um, over the last election with the January yeah. 6th, I mean, it's, it, there's no guarantee that whatever systems we have now, that these technologies are going to always be 
you know, we'd like to think about what we're putting our data into this really protective, like locked vault and that we, we trust these companies are going to have their best intentions that they're going to be using it for contextually appropriate information. But the more that they're recording and storing and creating these models, let's prevent the government from saying, Hey, actually we want to implement a social score system in our Mm -hmm. country that's just like china and we're going to use this backlog of the last 10 years of immersive data of everything you've done in vr we're going to somehow create a a threat model that's going to give you a number and that number is going to decide whether or not you can get onto an airplane or not or get access to this loan or to have act you know use a bank you know there's so many layer ways in which that kind of the if you watch the film coded bias just ways that algorithms are making judgments and putting numbers and quantifying things in what is essentially unaccountable or unfalsifiable way, there's no way to even have transparency into it a lot of times. So we're kind of like moving into this future where all of these things are kind of going to be added all together. And to know how to draw those clear lines, I mean, like I said, the government is so already 10 to 20 years behind. Yeah. And that this is a quantum leap ahead of all of that. And even new paradigms that are above and beyond how we even conceive of privacy. Uh, Britton Heller is trying to define these concepts of biometric psychography, but there's so many more other things that need to be done and that we have to have a complete like change in the way that we think about how to draw these lines and to protect our data. Um, the GDPR is a great start, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah. Do you think that this pushes us more towards something like the need for decentralized organizations of some kind? Because, you know, if you don't really want the companies to have it and you don't really want the government to have it, who leads the charge? Well, DAOs are unfortunately susceptible to, you know, civil attacks, meaning that there's a small number of people that end up taking a controlling stake um, and that there's a lot of times difficult for whatever decentralized systems you have to to be undecentralized by having centralized entities take it over. I mean, just to look at the distribution of how many people own Bitcoin and how many mining companies are mining Bitcoin. And there's already been instances for DAOs that have been overtaken based by, you know, people buying enough of the the coins. So I don't think that DAOs are necessarily an answer on their own right, because, you know, you have culture and the culture is driving these different entities. And then you have, you know, on top of the culture, then you have the laws and the regulations that were, that were, ordering our society. And then you have the economic dynamics and then you have the technological architecture and the code. So this, it, all these ethical issues are some combination of all of those. And as soon as you try to take an engineering technological solution and ignore the cultural solutions and the economic dynamics and the legal aspects, um, you end up getting into a really bad space. So I'm, I'm generally against kind of taking a technological deterministic approach of, of solving a lot of these issues. They need to have things like homeomorphic encryption and um, different aspects of a tech layer, um, differential privacies, other examples of trying to do processing on the data without having access to the data. So you can maybe get the information without revealing the raw data. So there's techniques like that, that in terms of protecting the privacy, but I really think that you can't get beyond needing to actually pass laws at the, you know, there's international laws, but there's also laws that are, are passed within the federal, you know, government within the United States. There's states that are doing stuff, but you know, a unified federal privacy law that really comprehensively addresses this at the end of the day is what we're going to need to really address this. It's, it's, I don't yeah. think you're, you're not going to get around uh, self-policing behaviors because um, you know the, they're not going to do it unless they're forced to do it. And right. they're not going to be forced to do it. 
unless there's a federal law that's passed to be able to, to force them to do it. So it's less about moving them out of the private sector or moving it to the hands of the government. It's more about just passing laws that controls whoever has it, their hands on it in the first place. Well, some of those laws could be what you can and cannot do with some of that data, um, yeah. the, the contextual integrity approaches. I mean, there's there's different philosophy of, of privacy. The libertarian approach would be that we own our data and we can do whatever we want. There's a paternalistic approach that says that these things are, are and are not allowed. And you know that's, um, that's an approach that uh, the GDPR takes a little bit more of that approach. The contextual integrity means that it's a little bit dependent upon the context. And so you're going to have to find some combination of those, I think, um, because there are, there may be things that we say, we just can't do this because, you know, because as an example, you can't sell your organs, right? I mean, that's just something that we've decided as a, as a, as a society that you can't do because of the, the parts, the, the, the amount of harm that that happens. It's a bad incentive. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you can't sell your organs, right? So that's something that's against the law. So maybe privacy is somewhat like that. Like maybe mm. that we've been treating privacy like we're just selling our organs and we're, we're, we're kind of at the point where it's been okay because it's been stuff that we've been typing into a computer and that's or our behaviors or tracking. But once you start to get into like the unconscious layers of our psyche that you can extrapolate based upon our physiological reactions that are being radiated from our body in a way that we're not even aware of, you start to get into this realm of like, where are the ethics there in terms of how you draw those lines? Um, I don't, yeah, I yeah. think it's going to be really, it's, it's, if anybody's interested in terms of like the frontiers of like philosophy and, you know, tech policy and, you know, this is, this is it, this is like one of the hardest questions. And I've been trying to, you know, do different talks and, you know, do different interviews with different people. There's, it's, it's still, I'd say probably the biggest open question that, you know, when I think about the blockers, like until this is really solved, it, there's going to be a part of me that's like almost second guessing, like, is this really a good idea to be promoting this? Because it's just like uh, getting this out. But with any sufficiently powerful new technology, there's going to be amazing things you can do. And there's also going to be amazing harms. Yeah. And that's just been like the, the history of technology has always been like that. So how do you balance those? Because I, I see the potential and I want to live into those potentials, but you know, how to really put the guardrails on so that we don't, you know, just have meta up there saying that they're, they're all about privacy when really their definition is from 1973. And it's really an antiquated approach of privacy that is saying, oh, because you checked a checkbox that says that you consent that they can basically do whatever they want. I don't think that's going to fly as we move forward into yeah. the, the next frontiers of surveillance capitalism mashed up with XR technologies. I was going to say, it feels like now is one of the most interesting times ever to be a philosopher or an ethicist because so much of what we struggled with, the things like the trolley problem and self-driving cars and, and whatnot, like technology is forcing us to answer questions that we've long kind of uh, waxed philosophical about, but never actually had to implement any <laughs> solution for. This is really interesting. Are there, are there any... Um, industries, I guess, or things that you are specifically looking forward to? I mean, as we kind of wrap this up, like what, what are you looking at as really exciting for you right now? Like what industry, what aspect of technology, what innovation, what's happening that is like making you really excited about where we're going? Well, for me, I spend a lot of time going to different film festivals, like the Sundance Film Festival, South by Southwest, Tribeca, Venice Film Festival, Ifa Doc Lab. 
because the creators that are there are really trying to push the frontiers and the forms of immersive storytelling. So you have really exciting things like the blending of immersive theater, like Sleep No More, where you're oh yeah you you're embedded and and have you had a chance to play that before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like this the the different forms and functions of immersive theater are starting to blend more and more. Um, so there's like Alien Rescue uh, from Meta Movie Project. Um, and there's, uh, you know, obviously the Gumball, um, Gumball Dreams by the Ferryman Collective, and uh, there's the Finding Pandora X um, and uh, Severance Theory. There's been a number of different immersive theater projects. Actually, on April 1st, there's going to be a return to having the Under Presents. It's going to um, have immersive theater actors return into that game. It's a game you can buy on the Quest. So you can buy a game on the Quest, and as you go through this experience, there's going to be like, um, shared social spaces where you see other players, but then immersive theater actors are coming back on April 1st. So in just a couple of days. Wow. So those things are exciting. And for me, just to, to see the, the forms of the storytelling, and I'm really interested in, in seeing what's happening with architectures and architects and how they're doing it, uh, you know, taking their techniques and very well adapting into bringing more game-like elements into how they do dynamic architecture Music uh, visualization is something I'm really interested in. Data visualization, I think is gonna be really key. There's a whole vibrant underground music culture that's happening within VRChat. And so like the social VR spaces like VRChat in terms of the frontiers of experimentation with avatar culture is probably the frontier, like just being able to have um, integrating new uh, OSC uh, objects. So there's new protocols that are allowing devices to be able to be used to be able to do different avatar expressions and so the the pathway towards the neural interfaces and new forms of embodiment within these virtual spaces is going to be really exciting to track the neuroscience applications in terms of like just being able to do core neuroscience research of being able to put people into immersive environments and to that being good enough to be able to do actual research into how people are perceiving the worlds and how they're reacting to different social dynamics and social situations and so uh, but also to be able to potentially, you know, start to crack the nut of consciousness and the nature of consciousness. Uh, are there ways yeah. that we can start to do that? Uh, the, eye, the eye tracking stuff that you were talking about is amazing because, uh, you know, I'm doing research right now where like that attention research in neuroscience is huge and having a consumer friendly product like that in the hands of researchers around the world where they can do eye tracking. That's quite revolutionary, really. Yeah, or even doing remote research for people at home, yeah. being able to put them into environments. And so, um, yeah, the training training has been a big thing in terms of Striver uh, being able to, I mean, they started with training elite quarterbacks in the NFL and, and college football, but um, have moved into like training Walmart workers and other um, Accenture. They do different types of training. So being embedded into an environment and actually going through the different training. So XR training is a huge area. Um Consciousness hacking and just different ways of people modulating their own consciousness. So there's the uh, um, the whole group of conscious uh, the um, yeah the conscious hacking group that did a Awakened Future Summit that I went to a number of years ago. These intersect the thing that I I'm seeing right now are these intersections of different communities coming together. So these collaborations. So at the Awakened Future Summit, it was the whole kind of Burning Man psychedelic culture mashed up with like meditators and meditative technologies mashed up with XR technologists. So what happens when you start to bring the, the psychedelic aesthetic into these immersive technologies um, and psychedelic therapy is going to be a huge thing for doing onboarding and offboarding and well, the ways that XR and spatial computings uh, being combined. 
Um, there's a piece at South by Southwest called Paradise that was done by Gabor Aurora and Darkfield that was collaborating with um, you know the, the area of nursing that was really uh, addressing aspects of domestic violence. Mm. And so really starting to sort of look at the, the frontiers of spatial audio to be able to tell the story of um, aspects of uh, domestic violence that, that kind of take the horror genre, but then blend it with aspects of documentary, but then are trying to evoke these emotions to catalyze conversations. Um, I was on the jury for the uh, XR experiences at South by Southwest, and the one that actually won the piece is called On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World, which is uh, a immersive story that's now free on the quest, where it is covering the January 13th, um, 2018 false ballistic missile alert in Hawaii, where oh. 1.4 million people got a text message that essentially said, uncoming uh, missile, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. So in other words, there's a nuclear weapon that's coming and you have about, they didn't even say how long, but it would be 15 to 30 minutes until you're facing nuclear annihilation. So this was a false alert, but for 38 minutes, it sent 1.4 million people into complete chaos and pandemonium. And they took that event as a, kind of a warning signal. Like, well, what was that event like to actually be there? I saw it on social media as just like a one day blip. And it was like, oh, it was a, mis a user error, a user experience mistake or user error. And I've kind of wrote it off, but it's actually a deeper story of like nuclear proliferation that that could even be a thing that you could wake up to a text message and you would have 40 minutes to live and, and you basically be annihilated. Yeah. Um, so Princeton University collaborated with Games for Change and then um, Archer's Mark and uh, Atlas V and they created this amazing 45 minute um, immersive documentary that really t immerses you into that experience and gets the perspective in, of uh, the indigenous Hawaiians. And um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful immersive story. And so I, I would recommend folks check that out to see the, the potential for what the medium can do in terms of connecting these aspects of these stories into you know, these really abstract geopolitical, you know, nuclear non-proliferation is such a huge thing, but in the wake of Ukraine war and Putin kind of saying, okay, Get the nuclear disarmament, you know, on high alert. You know, basically, like, okay, everybody in the world is now facing what those Hawaiians went through, which is yeah. at any moment we could be facing nuclear annihilation. And why do we live in a world that this is even possible? So it start the VR medium takes those abstract concepts and allows you to be embedded into those experiences and to give you those direct embodied experiences. When you have that, you wake out, you walk out. And I guess there's this, this underlying principle of like future dreaming, like dreaming into a future that doesn't quite exist. And so with VR, you can start to prototype those immersive worlds and cultures and maybe give people an immersive experience of that. And as, as, you know, whether it's indigenous futurism or Afrofuturism or just even just sci-fi futures or stuff that's trying to be a, a future potential that's in more right relationship to the world. And so that's a huge potential that I see a lot of really exciting work of people that are kind of taking those speculative designs and starting to actually make it and prototype those cultures. And with that, um, give people those immersive experiences and then eventually maybe bring those ideas out into the world. So I see it as VR as a technology that's kind of mirroring our own evolution. It's this um, crisis in the point where we haven't really figured out a lot of things like privacy that we need to figure out, but it's also, so there's things like that that are gonna, actually gonna introduce way really complicated problems of real-time moderation and What's it mean to have these environments for, for child safety? I mean, just so many different ethical aspects that you know I've, I've dug in before into like my uh, XR ethics manifesto and other work into ethics that I think there's is endless. There's always going to be new ethical dilemmas, but 
it's a reflection that we need to either evolve as a culture, um, but also the technology is sort of helping catalyze in, us into a new way of being. And I think that's that's kind of the potential for us to be able to maybe get a little bit less dissociated and more connected to each other um, and use VR for either mediation or connection or expressing our agency, connecting to people, um, simulating our ideas, really deepening with our emotional aesthetic experiences or having these deep embodied experiences that are taking us to these either worlds that exist in reality or, or don't exist anywhere else in reality. And uh, yeah, for me, I'll be uh, continuing to kind of just try to trace the frontiers and uh, um, talk to people in one interview at a time, just start to kind of map out what the frontiers are. There you go. And as we wrap up here, is there anything you specifically want to point people towards? Maybe your journey, what you're doing, uh, obviously your podcast, but anything new coming down the line that you want to talk about or promote before we jump off? Uh, I recommend checking out my episode 1000. If you want to do a deep dive, it's a three hour exploration that really digs into a lot of these potentials across many different industry dynamics. It's currently my pinned tweet, but if you just Google voices of VR 1000, it should come up as well. Um, but yeah, it's voices of VR a podcast. You can take a listen and I'm also supported by Patreon. So if you want to support the work I'm doing, I'm at uh, patreon.com slash voices of VR. Um, yeah. And it was a great pleasure to be able to, to join you today, to be able to talk about the future frontiers of VR. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for your time, man.